can turn to James chapter 5 if you haven't already. In this text, James talks about something that we don't really like to talk about that often, and that's our suffering, hardship, trials. We all know what it is to go through hardship, don't we? We've all experienced deep pain and hurt. We all know what it's like to enter into a trial not knowing when the end will come and feeling like it might not ever come at all. However, they might take shape, though. James, from the beginning of this letter, wants us to think about trials and hardship as an opportunity for great joy. Even though our suffering's painful, even though there's no joy in sight, he gives us this off-putting recalibration of our experiences. He wants us to look past the pain right in front of our faces to see what God is doing through the pain and the suffering and the hardship. In the middle of the pain, that's hard to do, isn't it? All that we can see is what's right in front of us. We can't look beyond it very well. But James assures his readers in this text that God is doing something through their hardships, through their suffering, through their pain, and he wants them to suffer well. God is using our hardship to make us more like Jesus. In a film depiction of C.S. Lewis, uh, the screenwriter captures much of Lewis's own explanation of suffering with this quote put in C.S. Lewis's mouth. We are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the form of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. The suffering in the world is not the failure of God's love for us, It is that love in action. So the question isn't whether we'll experience suffering, but whether we'll see it as God's love in action. The question is, are we going to suffer well? You might be asking, well, how do we do that? How do we suffer well? How do we go through this hardship in a right way? I think that's what James gives us in this chapter in verses 7 through 12. I think he gives us four ways to suffer well. As we examine these four ways, I just want to point out how compassionate and caring James's tone of voice is in this section. In the section we discovered last week, as we heard him pronouncing woes and oracles of judgment on the wealthy who are causing the troubles for others, we, we just felt like that was one of the harshest passages in the New Testament. James is not friendly or kind at all in that section. So if you're reading these sections together and you get to this spot, and he repeats this phrase, brothers and sisters, like three times very quickly, reassuring them of his love, we sense that he's speaking to them in a really comforting tone. I, I think this is a good guide for us when we talk to our brothers and sisters in the Lord about the sufferings that they're facing. I think sometimes we look at the hardships other people face, and because it's not bothering us, we get frustrated with them because of the difficulty they're facing. So whether that's some loss that they've had or emotions that they're feeling or whatever it might be, we can tend to have very limited compassion for other people in hardship. But James models for us someone who's very kind and tender. So I I want to try to take on that tone as I preach this sermon in the same way that I tried to take on a harsher tone last week, but I think all of us ought to take on this tone of compassion 
when we're talking to hurting people, even when that hurt is driving them to hurt us and to hurt others. So let's maintain an awareness of that shift as we examine these instructions for suffering well. He gives us four. Number one, wait on God. Number two, don't complain. Number three, follow good examples. Number four, commit to God completely. That's where we're going. These are the four instructions. But first, wait on God. Verses 7 through 8, he calls the Christians to be patient, to wait on God. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. Then again in verse 8, you must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. We ought to wait on God in our suffering. I think this is the first step, the first action we ought to take. We have to wait on God. But wait on God until the Lord's coming? How is that helpful at all? Christians for almost 2,000 years have read this in their suffering. Wait on God because the coming of the Lord is near. I don't know that, how that hits you, but that doesn't really strengthen my heart when I'm going through a difficulty. How many other Christians put their hope in Christ's return to end their sufferings and it never came in their lifetime? What good does this hope do us? I think that's an okay question to ask. On the one hand, I'd say that although this hope seems somewhat meaningless to us and the return of Christ seems so far away, we're helped in other texts of Scripture when the Apostle Peter reminds us that Christ's delay in returning is not a sign of his lack of care, but it's really him offering further opportunities for repentance for people. So when we think of the delay of Christ's return to end our suffering, we think about it somewhat mournfully. Why can't he just come back? But ultimately, that delay is a positive thing. And I think on the one hand, James really is talking about the return of Christ, this final return that will put an end to all suffering forever. But I don't know that that's the main thing James is focusing on. You see, we can talk about Christ coming in this eschatological end times way, but I think that there are other comings of Christ or comings of God that we experience in our life that might not be quite as noticeable. I don't think he's saying just hang in in there, eventually Christ will come. I think he's indicating that God meets us in our suffering and we ought to patiently wait for him to meet us in our pain. Unfortunately, I think we ignore God coming to us in our suffering because we think, well, it will end when Jesus comes, but Jesus hasn't come yet, so there's got to be another option. This is it. Eventually, I'll go to heaven, and I'll be dead, and I won't experience suffering anymore. So we start to say, instead of Christ coming to me, I'll go to him. That's where my ultimate hope will be. I just hope I die soon, but not too quickly because there are also good things. We misplace our hope, not in Christ's coming, but in our ascent to him. I don't think James wants us to do that either. I think he does want us to cling on to the hope that Christ will come finally and fully forever in the future. But I think he also wants us to attend to the fact that Christ comes every day. God meets us every day in our hardships and sufferings and sorrows. He hints at this in chapter 4, verse 8 when he writes, draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. So humble yourself in repentance, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And now in these verses, he's telling Christians, be patient because Christ's coming is near. Later in this section, he'll comment that the judge is standing at the door. God's presence is never far from his suffering people. So while it's true that Christ will come in the future, and patience is required for that suffering, he reminds us of the reality that God's coming is always near. As we draw nigh to God, as we draw near to God in our suffering, God draws near to us. He illustrates this with the image of a farmer who's planted the seed, he's worked the soil, and now he's waiting for the early and the later rains. So he tells you to consider the farmer who who waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. This image is lost a little bit on us because none of us are farmers, and we have irrigation systems. But in the ancient world, they were really heavily dependent on these spring and fall rains to bring about the produce, to to allow their crops to grow. I think this image is really helpful for two reasons. Number one, when we think about this farmer planting the seed, we don't think about him going out one day, throwing some seeds out there, and then going inside and never looking at them again. No, we think about an actively waiting farmer, someone who has tilled the ground, who's weeding the soil, who's doing everything that he can within his realm of responsibility for this crop to grow. So when God calls us to wait patiently in our sufferings, he's not encouraging us to be lazy or apathetic or to set aside responsibility. James is not advocating a let go and let God approach where we just do whatever we want, and hope that God will take care of all of our problems. That's not what James is indicating here. He doesn't want us to become lazy. He wants us to be actively patient. But the image helps us even more when we read it in light of the Old Testament, particularly in texts like Deuteronomy 11, where Moses instructs the people of God to pray for God to bring the spring and the autumn rains so that they would reap a a bountiful harvest. And, And he warned them that if you're not worshiping God, if you go to false gods, these rains are not going to come. And, and when they come, if you worship the false gods, so like the pagan rain deities of your neighbors, then, then you're going to be rebuked and God will bring about a famine. So where James is using this language, he's trying to draw to mind all of this Old Testament imagery that would connect God's presence to the early and the late rains. So I think in this image, what he's doing is saying, just as the farmer waits for the early and late rains, you ought to wait for God's presence. Because the farmer saw in the rain God coming to meet his needs. And when you're in times of suffering and you start to see things develop that bring relief and things that sustain you, you shouldn't detect those things as just the thing itself, but you should detect that as God's presence in the thing that relieves your suffering and that provides for you. So just as it would be wrong for this farmer to see the rain coming and just think, great, it rained, life is better, so too would it be wrong for you and I in our trials and hardship to experience relief and comfort and just 
think of the relief and comfort itself without detecting God's presence and activity in the relief and comfort. So let me give you a brief illustration. There could be thousands of illustrations because we face various kinds of trials. But imagine that you are experiencing a sort of financial hardship and you go out to your mail one day and somehow there's an envelope in there with $200, no stamp. You know, you're not going to turn whoever this is in for violating the postal rules, but you take that money and it helps you financially. Now, later you come to find out that there's a lot of criminal activity in your neighborhood and someone paid for drugs by dropping money in the wrong mailbox. Now, you might look at that and say, great, financial relief and a drug lord, you know, was extracting payments and I got it. I hopefully, hopefully I don't die over this. But great, my financial burdens are relieved. Um, if that's where you stop, you're like a pagan. You're not someone who's detecting God's presence in this corrupt drug money that is now aiding you. I give that example because that has happened to me. But <laughs> you, you see how in our lives we can find relief from hardship and we can take that relief and move on without a further reflection. I think what James wants us to do is say, ultimately, that druggie didn't drop off that money. God dropped off that money for you. Ultimately, when you find financial health after a period of difficulty, it's not ultimately medication that does this for you. It's God who meets you in your suffering. Whatever the case might be, James wants us to recognize that we ought to be patient in our enduring of suffering. And whenever we find relief and provision and help, we ought to detect God's presence because the Lord is near. When we draw near to God in our suffering, he meets us in a variety of ways in shapes and forms that we could never prescribe. This mini parable is intended to guide our own experience of suffering and to direct us in it, to patiently wait for the coming of the Lord in whatever shape it might take, and then to worship him and praise him for it. And as we get these glimpses of God's sustaining provision and presence in our lives, it reminds us that there will be one day when Christ will return and he'll put an end to suffering forever. Not just that momentary relief, but forever free from the hardship and trials in this life. So how do we respond to this first step? I think you just have to keep giving yourself over to God every single day and asking him to meet you however he pleases. We all have the best idea of how God could meet us, fixing our problem, taking it away, but it may be that we experience God's presence more deeply and fully by him allowing the trial to remain, but making himself known in these little but significant ways all along our experience of the hardship. So I would suggest that it's not wrong for us to ask God to take the trial, the suffering, the hardship away from us, but more significantly, we should pray that God meets us with his presence in the hardship. I think there's one final point of response that I want to give here. I, I think that as we look at our larger world in our life and all of the wickedness that is in our world, we, we tend to 
look for the early and late reign, so to speak, from somewhere other than God. We start to put our hope in a political power or in getting the right job or um, finding the right doctor or whatever the case might be. We, we look at all of these things in our lives and we eventually start to think that if we can just get what we think the solution should be in place, everything will be perfect. But James reminds us that the perfect doesn't come till Christ comes. So investing our hope and our, inf- and our affections in all of these other things is really quite pointless. They're these things that might offer a, re- a remedy, a band-aid solution that we put our hope in, they, they can't do it. Only Christ's return and the full establishment of his kingdom will set things right. So don't give your hearts, don't give your hopes to lesser options. Instead, give yourself to God over and over again and receive his presence in whatever shape it might take. So number one, to suffer well, wait on God. Number two, don't complain. So after encouraging his readers about their relationship with God, looking upward, he now speaks about their relationships with one another, looking outward. How easy is it and how natural for us to start to squabble when we're frustrated, to be short with other people when we're crabby, to complain about one another when things get tough, to shift blame on other people for whatever difficult circumstances we might be facing. We've all seen this in our favorite movies or TV shows where you have this group that's stranded on an island or something, and if only they would pull together, they'd be able to find their way forward. But instead, you know, a storm rolls in and they start blaming one another for all their problems that ultimately no one has control over. But when we get in hard situations, our natural response is to start to bicker with other people. We've all read the Old Testament narratives that describe Israel complaining in the wilderness as soon as the going gets tough. Send us back to Egypt. It was so much better there. Let's complain and grumble about one another. We all look at those examples and we wonder how they could be so childish. But we've all been those people as we blame anyone but ourselves for whatever difficulty we might encounter. When things get hard, our impulse is to complain about one another. So James, writing with all the down-to-earthness of a carpenter's son who knows how people respond in hard situations, says, Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. You have to remember that in chapter 4, he essentially said as soon as you start judging other people and complaining about them, you're, you're taking God's place and evaluating them and rendering a judgment on them. And that's not your place. It's not our place to assign blame, to evaluate other people's actions in our hardships. We're not the judge. There's only one judge who is able to save and destroy, and that is God. And James warns that the judge is standing at the door. So being patient and suffering well involves a steadfast refusal to complain about one another. Um, You probably, especially those of you with kids, have all experienced circumstances where two of your kids are in the other room and they're complaining and fighting with one another. And as soon as they detect your presence at the door, they go silent. 
right? I, growing up with my many siblings, we learned very quickly um, that if one of the parents showed up, we better just stop our fighting with one another because it was going to be way worse if our parents got involved because ultimately we knew that we were in the wrong. I, I think that's the image James wants to give us. It's so silly for us to be bickering and complaining about one another as the true judge is standing at the door about to walk in. should put us to silence, recognizing that we're not God. We're not the judge. And probably what we're complaining about, those people we're complaining about, have nothing to do with the hardship we're facing. Now, I do want to emphasize that James suggests that, and he does more than suggests, he does not permit that we complain about one another. But I, I want us to grab onto the fact that he's not saying that we can never complain about something that we can never talk about our hardship with other people. I, I think sometimes we try to set ourselves up as more pious and holy than anyone who's gone before us and more um, pious than God himself by saying, if I enter into hardship, I'm never going to say a word about it. I'm never going to talk about it with other people. I'm never going to complain about it. Um, we're not supposed to complain about one another, but I think that there is a right way for us to complain about our suffering, particularly as we address our complaints to the Lord. I think as we start reading through the Psalms in Sunday mornings, we're going to hear the psalmists complain over and over and over again about their hardships, but they complain about them to the Lord. And I think with the recognition that the judge is standing at the door. So did you hear in the text that Richard read from Psalms 3 and 4, where the psalmist is kind of complaining about his situation, and then he says, vindicate me, O God. The judge is standing at the door, so complain, but complain to the right person and refuse to complain about other people. I, I think that's the way our complaining should take shape in our suffering. So don't complain. Wait on God. Don't complain. Three, follow good examples. Follow good examples. James teaches us that to suffer well, we need to identify and follow the examples of others who have suffered well. He first points to the prophets. Right? So look at the prophets or take the prophets as an example who spoke in the Lord's name. Look to these people who have gone before us who have suffered well. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't necessarily think of the prophets as someone I would look to as an example of people who suffered well. But the more you read the Old Testament, the more you start to realize that these prophets were not received in a friendly manner by the people they were speaking to. So sometimes we think about prophets as people who just tell the future, that's not the main job of a, of a prophet. The main job of the Old Testament prophets was to critique the present behavior of Israel. Their main job was to show up at work every day and tell the Israelites, you're sinful and God's judgment is coming. Well, do you think the Israelites wanted to hear that? No. Do you think they treated those prophets well? Not at all. Read the Old Testament and over and over again, the prophets suffer at the hands of their own people. So while you might imagine 
someone like Gandalf or Dumbledore or some wizened figure showing up and then mysteriously departing, these prophets had to live around the people that they proclaimed judgment against, and it wasn't a pretty picture. They were persecuted and unpopular people. So uh, there's this ancient Jewish book called The Lives of the Prophets, and it's not really history, it's more like fan fiction, but you can start to detect the way that people thought about the prophets and the way that they were treated. Just to give you a couple examples of their suffering, uh, in that book, they talk about how Isaiah died by being sawed in half by the order of the king of Judah, and how Jeremiah is described as being stoned to death by the Israelites and then buried, buried in Pharaoh's palace because he was better respected and esteemed higher by the Egyptians than by the Israelites. That's how the Old Testament prophets were treated. Yet they were called to maintain faithful declarations of God's truth to the people that they were being persecuted by. Prophets suffered, but they suffered well. They obeyed God's instructions. They continued to speak God's word, and sometimes they even died for it. So I think a really obvious point of response here is that if we're going to look at the Old Testament prophets as examples for suffering well, you've got to read the Old Testament, and especially the Old Testament prophets. I know books like Isaiah and Jeremiah are super long, and books like Hosea are kind of weird. Frankly, some of the things these prophets were called to do just are, are strange. But you've got to read the Old Testament prophets if you're going to look at them as examples of how to suffer well. And as you observe the really bizarre things that God had them do, you might start to see that the way God calls us to live as Christians in this world is not quite as bizarre as we feel like it is. And, and how we are called to maintain faithfulness to God through our hardships, is not as difficult as it was for the Old Testament prophets. The point is we've got to read the Old Testament to find these examples. But the prophets aren't the only examples that James points to. He also references one person in particular, and that is Job. He writes, you have heard of, the, of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. So he recalls this famous story of Job. Now, it's recorded in the Bible, but it's also recorded in the fan fiction literature of ancient Israel. In, in that literature, Job is like the best guy in the world. Like, he takes the suffering with a smile on his face, pretty much. He's perfect. Well, in the biblical story of Job, he's actually kind of whiny and complainy. When we were reading through this in our, those of us reading through this yearly Bible reading plan, we were reading through it, and we're like, Man, I would not want to be around Job because he just complains all the time. He doesn't handle suffering with a smile. I think maybe that's part of the point in using him as an example in this text. Enduring suffering and hardship does not mean that we plaster on a fake smile or we have a facade of happiness as we go through really difficult times. I think suffering well involves genuinely expressing what we're going through. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to hide it from others or from God. But the point of drawing on Job's example is not just to see how he suffers, 
but to see what God does through the suffering. So you read, he, you have heard of Job's endurance, but more than that, you've seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Think about that. We, we need examples of suffering, not only to inspire us to go through hard things well, but to demonstrate for us what God has always done through difficulty, what God has always done at the other end of a trial. He's always shown his compassion and mercy. We need both of those sides. We need examples that inspire us, and then we need to see the results of that suffering that confirms in us that whatever hardship we walk through, God is compassionate and merciful. So read your Bible. Read of people who suffered and suffered well and see what God did through their sufferings. We have more than just the Bible to help us do this. We have great biographies. Read biographies of Christians who endured suffering well. I could list a handful of them. I have several upstairs that you're welcome to borrow. Um, I have not read many biographies of females, but Kristen Molnix has, and she said you can ask her for recommendations. Talk to other people, see who they have been encouraged by, and read those biographies. Perhaps put a pause on your daily news podcast, and on your drive to work instead, listen to an audiobook of uh, Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison, or a biography of John Newton, or Frederick Douglass, or Jim Elliott's journals. Find a way to get this into your life so you can see Christians who have suffered well in the outcome of their suffering that displayed God's compassion and mercy. But there's hope even for those of you who will never pick up a book in your life. Look around at other Christians in this church and get to know them and talk with them about their experiences of trial and hardship and suffering and how God has met them and showed his compassion and mercy in it. Invite them out for some one-on-one time. Have them in your home. Go out for a cup of coffee. Get to know them. You know, don't awkwardly force them to be vulnerable about their deepest sufferings, but get to know them and talk to them about what they've experienced and how God has met them. Show up at things like your home groups or our uh, pizza and praise time, or our family discussion forums, and hear of the suffering of God's people in the mercy and kindness of God that shows up over and over again. So to suffer well, learn and follow the examples of others. Number four, commit to God completely. Commit to God completely. Verse 12, seems a little bit out of place. Um, Depending on the English translation you're using, verse 12 might be set off with a different heading, with like truthful speech or something like that, or maybe it's in a whole separate paragraph. Uh, He writes, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment." This just seems like it doesn't follow. And originally, 
I had this marked out as a separate sermon, but the more that I was reading this text, I think that it's very, very closely connected. But I have to start by trying to convince you of what it doesn't mean, because I'm assuming you think it means what I thought it meant when I started studying it. When I first read this, I was thinking, okay, I should never take an oath. I should never swear, you know, I should never... um, make a promise. Like, I promise I will do this. I pinky promise this. I swear on the Bible. That's what this is arguing against. I don't think that's the case. And even when you look at Jesus's life and example, he pretty much went through an oath-swearing ceremony before Pilate. I, I don't think this text is saying if you're ever in a court of law and they ask you to go under oath that you shouldn't do that. I, I don't think that's what this text is saying. I don't think this text is saying never make a promise or something like that. Um, I I think what James is doing here is grabbing onto a saying of Jesus that's found in Matthew 5, where Jesus tells his listeners, uh, you have heard it said that you ought to keep your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, you know, don't take an oath at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the whole context is making a promise or a vow or a commitment to God with an oath. And and Jesus talked about this very clearly with this Old Testament reference, and I think that's what James is getting at here. I think ultimately what James is saying is that when you are going through a trial or a hardship, don't say something like this. God, if you take this away from me, I will do blank. If you remove this hardship from my life, or if you give me this outcome that I want, I commit to do this for you. So let me give you an example from the Old Testament. I think this is the one James has in mind. Um, In 1 Samuel 1, uh, you have this guy with two wives, uh, one who has had kids and one who hasn't. Her name is Hannah. And she prays every day that she'll have a child. And this other wife is really mean to her. Um, She she is berating her all the time. She's putting her down all the time. Um, The husband has pity. He really loves Hannah more than his other wife, so he'll give her more food. But this woman is in such despair and heartache that she can't even eat the food, even though she's getting more of it. And eventually, she prays to the Lord and says, if you will give me a son, then I will commit him to your service for his whole life. So she prays to the Lord of armies. Now, that phrase James used earlier in his letter, that's why I think he's thinking of this situation. But she she makes a vow or she makes an oath to the Lord that if you end my hardship and end my suffering, if you do what I want, if you offer me this, I'll offer you something. James is saying, don't do that. I I think we all probably have been tempted at one time in our life or another to make a promise to God that if he will just change our circumstances, then I'll do blank. Um, So uh, if, if you will just let me get out of trouble with my parents, you know, kids, maybe you're like waiting for your parent to come in and give you the punishment, and you're thinking, God, if you just get me out of this punishment, I will obey you forever. Um, or, or maybe it's more serious, and you're thinking, God, if you get me out of this 10 years in prison, then I will sign up to 
to be in a monastery for 10 years instead. You know, like we, we come up with these crazy things where we say, God, if you will just do what I want, then I'll offer you something. I'll give you something. And Jesus, I think, is in James here. I think they're warning against this because they're trying to say, you don't know what you need. God knows what you need, and, and you should trust him. You gave your yes to God when you received Christ, and you should let that yes stay a yes. Don't, don't try to offer God more with an oath. Let your yes to God stay yes, even in your hardship. Don't, don't blame God. James already said that in chapter one. Don't, don't say God is doing this. Let your yes be yes. Say yes to God regardless of what he brings into your life. Suffering well means receiving all that God gives you with an open hand from the God who gives and who takes away and who gives again on his will, not because we forced his hand or convinced him to by making a vow or an oath. You gave your yes to God. Don't let hardship turn it into a no. And don't offer more yeses only if God complies with what you want. Suffering well means that you keep saying yes to God regardless of what comes. But why can we do that? Why can we keep saying yes to God over and over and over again? Why can we follow any of these steps? I think ultimately we can do this because God has given his yes to us in Jesus Christ. Different author, same idea. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Our hardship does not take away God's yes to us in Christ. Our trials do not remove God's love from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. So we can keep saying yes to God regardless of what we face because of God's yes to us in Jesus. This is really the only hope that we have in any of our experiences of hardship and suffering. Because God, who became flesh, Jesus Christ suffered in this world. He did so patiently, waiting for the coming of the Lord, the coming of God's presence, not with peace and rest, but with judgment on the cross. He did it without complaint in the garden, consistently giving himself over to God's will and design. In so doing, he gave us the ultimate example of suffering well, of saying yes to whatever God puts in front of us. He showed us a commitment, a wholehearted, undivided commitment to God. And in that commitment, he offers God's commitment to us, the commitment to show compassion and mercy regardless of what we face. So when our trials come, we can keep saying yes to God. We can keep rejoicing in him. So in a moment, we'll sing a song of response, and then we'll come to the table. And as we receive those elements, let us remember the Christ who gave himself for us, who suffered for us, 
so that we could have God's yes, so that we can keep saying yes to God. Let's pray. Father, would you meet with us now? Would you meet with those who are going through hardship and trial and suffering? And even as we sing, would you reassure us of the love that you have for us? Would you remind us and let us know that what we face in this life is not proof that you're not here or that you don't love us, but it's actually proof that you do love us and you're working in our lives to shape us and remake us into the image of Christ. Would you give us that faith and endurance to suffer well and to say yes to you regardless of what we face? It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.